Psalm 122.6 commands us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. What does it mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? What exactly does God intend us to do or say when we pray? Well, just ahead, you'll enjoy a practical conversation about an ancient command. And later on, you'll have a front row seat at the Battles at the Pool of Gibeon. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. It's the program that makes you feel like you're really in Israel. Our host, Charlie Dyer, has been there more than 100 times. I'm John Geiger. Good to connect with you, Charlie. I'm looking forward to the program. Uh, John, I'm glad to be with you today. And there's certainly a lot happening in Israel, so it's a fun time to get together. Well, once our program today, though, is over, uh, you have to ask, where do we turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Life and Messiah is focused on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. In fact, engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics. Uh, We encourage you to check out their content, which you'll find inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button. All right, here's a survey of news stories from the Middle East taking place this past week. Number one, the conflict over judicial reform came to a head this week as Israeli lawmakers passed the first judicial reform bill. Amid protests and strikes and predictions of national disasters, and in the middle of all that drama, Prime Minister Netanyahu had to undergo an emergency procedure to implant a pacemaker. What impact will all these events have on Israel and maybe Netanyahu himself? Yeah, I need to answer several ways, John. First, in spite of all the predictions of doom, the law just passed doesn't signal the end of democracy. It just keeps Israel's Supreme Court from blocking legislation and decisions by simply claiming that what was decided is unreasonable, even if it doesn't violate any laws. The court can still rule on the lawfulness of an act or decision. They just can't arbitrarily apply reasonableness, which they alone get to define, to block otherwise legal decisions. Now, does this mean the prime minister or Knesset could fire the current attorney general and appoint a new one? Yes, it does. And that's how our government functions. Every new president gets to appoint his own attorney general subject to congressional approval. And that system works well for us. But now back to the question. Israel is experiencing turmoil over the passage of this law. Protest marches and strikes and store closures are taking place to protest the passage of the bill. Uh, The question is whether they'll continue long-term or gradually fizzle out. A more serious problem could be felt by the military, though, with thousands of Army and Air Force reservists saying they will no longer volunteer for reserve duty because of the law. Right now, it's unknown what that impact would be should they follow through on that threat. The chief of Israeli Defense Forces said it could potentially imperil Israel's existence. Uh, Certainly, the turmoil is being watched by Israel's enemies. Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas officials discussed how to respond, and right now they've agreed to keep quiet to let the turmoil take its own toll. But they are looking to the day when they hope Israel is sufficiently weakened to make an attack possible. And as if the political and military turmoil wasn't enough, Netanyahu's health scare was a reminder that the current coalition is held together by Israel's longest-serving prime minister, whose own physical health can't be taken for granted. You you put all that together, and you have a country gripped by political upheaval. 
The hope is that the internal turmoil will be short-lived and that Israel's external enemies won't try to use the occasion to launch any military attacks. Charlie, as you've presented this uh, judicial reform in a nutshell, it seems reasonable. Why then oppose it? What, what's what's behind all that? Two things. Uh, the First, the, the people who are opposing it are very liberal. They're young and very liberal uh, and very secular. They don't want any impact on their freedom. In fact, their idea is democracy means I can do whatever I want. But also, there are a group who are very upset that those pushing for it are the ultra-religious. And the ultra-religious, they feel, not only want to change the judiciary, they want to make Israel into a, uh, a theocracy. And uh, the secular side does not want that to happen, and they're going to fight tooth and nail to oppose it. Current events, that's our focus in this opening segment of The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. Russia's refusal to extend the agreement allowing the export of wheat from Ukraine threatens famine across Africa. What is Russia hoping to accomplish through their actions, and could a deal still somehow be reached? But Russia is really hoping to accomplish two goals. First, it wants to threaten a global food shortage to blackmail the West into reducing or eliminating its economic boycott and sanctions against Russia. Now, Russia's economy shrank by almost 2% in the first quarter of 2023, largely because of the economic sanctions. The Russian central bank hiked its key interest rate for the first time in over a year amid fears that a weakening ruble will drive up inflation. In fact, they raised it a full percentage point. But second, Russia wants to change the trajectory of the West's support for Ukraine in their war against Russia. By halting exports of its wheat and Ukraine's wheat, Russia removes one key source of income for Ukraine, while at the same time pressuring the West to provide more economic support to Africa to help stave off famine in that region. Russia believes it can wear down the West economically to force it to reduce its support for Ukraine and to pressure the Ukrainians into making peace on Russia's terms. Uh, there's some risk to Russia's plan. You know, it could sour their relations with countries in North Africa, most impacted by the reduction of grain exports. In the past, Russia's used humanitarian aid to help push their agenda. Uh, if they withhold that aid for any length of time, uh, much of those past gains could be lost. So it's a gamble on Russia's part. What we need to hope is that all sides can reach an agreement that allows grain exports to resume without, of course, selling out Ukraine in the process. Otherwise, the world could face a shortage of wheat in the very near future. Well, Charlie, isn't it almost virtually impossible, though, to militarily or by other means enforce what Russia's trying to do? I mean, couldn't they just go ahead and export anyway? Uh, the problem is that uh, most of the wheat gets exported from Ukraine and Russia, two of the largest exporters, uh, through the Black Sea, and Russia's threatening to attack even the commercial ships that are carrying the grain. So uh, it really could impact that uh, export of wheat. And right now the world needs the wheat from Ukraine and Russia in order to keep the supply strong. This past week, Turkey was scheduled to host Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, followed by Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu. Unfortunately, Netanyahu was forced to postpone because of his hospitalization. Were these scheduled back-to-back -back visits just a coincidence? Or could Turkey have had other reasons for hosting both meetings? Well, Turkey does seem to be pushing forward on a number of diplomatic fronts, though why they had these two meetings back-to-back -back, uh, isn't so clear. Uh, the meeting with Abbas, followed by the postponed meeting with Netanyahu, certainly suggests that uh, Turkey's President Erdogan is trying to build bridges to both groups, and uh, this must be for more than just economic or military reasons. You know, Turkey's cut back on its support for Hamas, quietly expelling some of the Hamas leadership who were living there, and in the past two weeks... 
Turkey's also agreed to once again exchange ambassadors with Egypt. There are likely other reasons behind all these diplomatic moves beyond just building bridges with Israel, the Palestinians, and Egypt. For example, Turkey's being pressured by Russia in part because of its decision not to oppose Sweden's entry into NATO. Russia's pressure might also have been prompted by Turkey's desire to join the European Union, a process that began back in 1987, but that was frozen by Erdogan five years ago. Uh, With the economy in Turkey taking uh, a turn to the south, Erdogan feels that being part of the European Union could help his country. Russia has responded to all of that by sabotaging a deal to let aid into the areas of Syria controlled by Turkey, and that compounds the Syrian refugee problem in Turkey. The bottom line is, Turkey now seems to be engaged in a charm offensive with Europe and Israel and Egypt and the Palestinian Authority, hoping to, I think, rehabilitate their image as an unreliable partner and ally. (laughs) And it's doing so for its own economic interests. Now, only time will tell if Turkey can bring Israel and the Palestinians together. Uh, Certainly, Israel has good reason not to trust Erdogan after some of his previous verbal attacks against them. A Hebrew university professor claims that archaeological evidence supports the fact that David was a major ruler over the kingdom of Israel. What evidence does he offer, and how have others responded to his proposal? Now, this professor, Yosef Garfinkel, argues that a network of fortified cities and roads around Jerusalem, dated to the time of King David, point to the reality that David did rule over a large, complex kingdom. He bases his claim on a re-examination of previous archaeological dig reports and publications from five excavated cities within a one-day walk from Jerusalem. Those sites were Lachish, Beit Shemesh, Kirbet Kayafa, Kirbet Eddawara, and Tel Nazbeh. His argument is that a kingdom is defined by the presence of cities, roads, military power, economic power, and writing. And these five sites, all set on the border of the kingdom along roads into the kingdom, and together they exhibited all the characteristics of an established kingdom. Now, while the excavations were all done previously, Garfinkel's the first to show the similarities in all the sites that link them together. Not surprisingly, many archaeologists disagree with this presentation, primarily because they don't accept the historicity of King David. But for those of us who believe the Bible, it's a good reminder that external evidence for the existence of David and his empire can be found if someone's willing to look. Thank you, Charlie. Great look there at current events for this week. Coming up, a conversation about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. What does that really mean? How are we supposed to pray when we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Then it's questions and answers. Charlie's got his Bible ready, and we're looking forward to that segment. Plus, get this, you'll have a front row seat at the battles at the Pool of Gibeon. That's all ahead on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Psalm 122.6 commands us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. What does it really mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? What does God intend us to actually do or say when we pray? Up next, a fresh conversation about an ancient command. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger saying thanks for carving out time to be with us today. You're going to be glad you did. Let's say hello to our guest, Dr. Erez Soref. He is president of One for Israel. I consider him a great friend, and we've been privileged to have him on the broadcast a number of times. 
Thank you for reconnecting with us today here on The Land and the Book. Sure, John. My pleasure. Great to be with you. For somebody who is new to your ministry, what exactly is One for Israel? So we are a ministry of native-born Israelis, uh, Jewish believers in the Messiah Jesus, and also Arab believers. And we get up in the morning to share the good news of Yeshua, Jesus, with our people. Uh, we also operate the only accredited Bible college in the country and have a variety of different ministries. Uh, that's who we are. How did uh, One for Israel come about? Surely it wasn't the result of some midnight dream. <laughs> no, not, not that. It's, it happened in phases. Um, you know, I, I didn't grow up in a, in a home where, I mean, it was a Jewish home. We didn't know anything about Jesus. I became his follower, his disciple, when I was 22. And when I did, I had a great joy of salvation on the one hand, but also a great burden for my people. How could it be that I have never heard the gospel until I was 22, even though I visited Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee many times, and my parents, my grandparents, you know, my friends and my, my people, how come we never mm. get to hear the gospel in a way we understand? So I would say that out of this burden, eventually the Lord has you know, brought about one for Israel, and that's the burden we carry, and that's our calling, and that's what we, again, wake up in the morning for. Okay, so on paper, it looks like if you drew a chart, there's a school. I know that much. Yes, so there is there's definitely a school where we do all the traditional things a Bible college or a seminary would do with studies and dictionaries and tests and so on. But beyond that, we have... Um, uh, television studios and a radio station, and we do a lot of things over media. Israelis are very connected to their phones, like Americans, or even more. If it's hard to That's believe, right. but but really are. And so we basically treat it as a wineskin, and we put in that wineskin the fresh message of Yeshua, of Jesus, in Hebrew and in Arabic, in a way that our people can relate. And they can understand. And I think the most exciting thing about this is that it's kind of taken us right back to the book of Acts, where, um, you know, Peter's standing and sharing in the gospel in Hebrew from the Hebrew Bible with our people, and a great multitude begins to follow Yeshua. And we're seeing similar things in our day and age. Well, this idea of one for Israel sounds great. I'm sure it looks great on paper, but how do you actually pull it off? I mean, what safeguards or policies do you have in place that help guard the unity? You've got not just uh, believing Jewish folks there, but you have Arabs as well under one roof. I mean, that sounds oh, yeah. risky. That's definitely unusual in our region. And, you know, the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael have been arguing, quarreling about the father's love. I mean, who, who daddy really likes more for close to 4,000 years? But the great news is that in the Messiah, in Jesus, the Jews and the Arabs love each other. And the, the, therefore, we, are, we very strongly believe that the solution for what we see in the media is spiritual. And so we are able to celebrate day in and day out our unity in the Messiah. We focus on him and in him, we have the true peace that we read about. We're talking with Dr. Erez Soroff here on The Land and the Book. But even with the fact that you are all born again, there have to be some challenges. What are some issues maybe in the past that you've had to work through, and, and how did you work through it? Yeah, so the biggest issue um, of serving our people, the Jewish people and Arab people, is that uh, basically we are treated as traitors. And the irony is huge because, you know, Yeshua, Jesus— is a Jew. I mean, he was born here. He lived among our people. He shared the gospel in Hebrew and Aramaic and and so on. And everything he did was within the Jewish world. 
Um, and yet today, you know, following 2,000 years of sometime painful church history, when Jewish people come to faith in Yeshua, the Messiah, and Jesus based on the Hebrew Bible, prophecies, and so on, our people, our families sometimes treat us as traitors because mm. we have crossed the uncrossable line. You can be Jewish and believe in anything you want, and you'll still be a good Jew. But as soon as you believe in Yeshua, in Jesus, that's the uncrossable line. Like we read in the New Testament, and it's amazing to see how little has changed among our people in those 2,000 years, but there are groups of Jewish people, many times from Orthodox background, like Paul before his um, you know, uh, road to Damascus experience, that believe that they serve God by making our life as difficult as possible and by attempting to stop our activity. That is mm. completely legal, by the way, in the land of Israel. And so um, they're not our enemies. We pray for them, and we many of them we know by first name, but um, they definitely try to create as many difficulties as they can and to stop our activity. That has been challenging for sure, um, as well as the regular and normal things of just living and <laughs> right. working among people. Right. Well, tell us a story that says, this is why I do what I do at One for Israel. Just today we got this text I actually just read it for the first time a minute ago. It's from a a man who is 50 years old. He says that he has been searching for God for many, many, many years. He was first exposed to the message of Jesus when he was studying abroad 25 years ago. But he, he never made a commitment, and he met other believers in Jesus here and there. I think he visited different Christian sites in the country. And then finally, in the last year, he discovered some of our websites and our literature, and he started reading and watching and listening. And he just wrote, and his message today was very encouraging. He says, I finally arrived home. I finally understood who Yeshua, who Jesus truly is mm. as the Jewish Messiah, not just for the whole world, but also for us as Jewish people in Israel. So that's the kind of thing we pray for. But what a great, great testimony that is. And, uh, just fresh, as you say, today. Mm-hmm. Our conversation today on The Land and the Book is with Dr. Erez Soraf, president of One for Israel. We have left our studios. We're in the north of Israel, Netanya, where that ministry is based. Let's uh, switch gears here, swing our focus towards something else, and that is what we teased up front. Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. What is the thought behind this verse? I think that we see throughout the Bible, it's never about Israel, it's about the God of Israel. And as we read the Bible, we understand that God's plan is for the salvation of the entire world. One central vehicle in that is the nation of Israel. And then I jump to Paul, and Paul in Romans eleven twenty five 25 says, well, if the blindness of the Jewish people of Jerusalem, the rejection of the Messiah has become a blessing to all the nations because the message has gone far and wide. He says, just imagine, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but imagine what a kind of blessing it would be when the Jewish people, when Jerusalem is gathered to faith in the Messiah. And so when I think when we as followers of Jesus pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we pray for God's plan for humanity to advance and for his blessing to be completed upon all the earth. What about the pragmatist who says, look, uh, you know, there really will be no peace in Jerusalem, no peace in Israel until the Prince of Peace himself returns. So 
Why bother? Why are we told to pray for this? Well, you know, I think there are many things that uh, as followers of Jesus, <laughs> we know that we are to do. We're, you want to do the right thing because it's the right thing, not because you necessarily see it in any immediate gain. And sometimes I think every follower of Jesus can testify that God is telling us to do things that in the natural feel uncomfortable to us. Um, that's one thing. I think another is the fact that the remnant the number of Jewish believers in Jesus has grown exponentially in the last 70 years or 75 years that the state of Israel has um, been established is a reason for us to pray. You know, the remnant, uh, which was basically almost not recognizable through most of church history, once again has grown to a recognizable size in the land of Israel and the prayers of the saints are important in that regard. Some people might ask, why does it say pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Why not pray for the peace of Israel? Or why not pray for the peace of the entire Middle East region? What about our Arab brothers and sisters? You know, I think when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, definitely you are praying for the peace of our Arab, you know, as we call them, cousins around the Middle East. And um, I think indeed, in the words of Zechariah, Jerusalem is a a cup of trembling for all the nations. And if there's peace in Jerusalem, the ramification is peace, not just the Middle East, but I think worldwide. What else is there about this verse that we maybe have overlooked or underestimated or not quite seen? Um, I often talk about Israel and the way God is dealing with the Jewish people, with the nation of Israel, is a, I would say, a clock for the nations, a clock or a watch for God's timetable, for his plan for all of humanity. So as we pray for Jerusalem, really, we are praying for God, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We know that ultimately the Messiah himself is going to be seated on his throne in Jerusalem, ruling the world in peace and in justice. And this is something that uh, all of us long for and pray for. So what's one practical way that uh, listeners can engage with this command to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? I mean, at first glance, uh, it seems like a, you know, a one sentence covers it all kind of prayer, but what might we be missing? So um, exactly for that reason, you know, that uh, many times believers want to obey the Lord and just pray generic prayer, oh Lord, bless Israel, bring peace to, to Jerusalem. And I'm humbled and thankful for that. But to help people pray more intelligibly, we at One for Israel have produced a what we call a prayer guide, a 31-day prayer guide for individuals, families, churches. It's a free resource. You can download it on our website, oneforisrael.org, or contact us and order physical copies. We'll send it free, completely free to you, to your church, whoever. So that will encourage people also to pray, not just for the physical part of, of the restoration of Israel, but also for the spiritual, with specifics of how to pray for the believers in Israel, the Jewish believers, and the Arab believers. I think that's huge, because we, we lack the insights that you can bring us, and lack the specificity to our praying that we wish we had. Mm -hmm. I agree. That's exactly what the prayer guide is for. Yeah. What are you seeing by way of fruit that makes you say, this is why we pray? Yeah, well, um, we just celebrated our 75th uh, our anniversary as a country, and so kind of looked at a bit of numbers and statistics. So just to give an example of the growth of the church in Israel, in 1948, when the state of Israel was established, there were 23, 23 Jewish followers of Jesus in the entire country. Wow. No churches or congregations of Jewish believers, none. The research we did a couple of years ago there were over 300 
churches, congregations, gatherings mm. of uh, regular gatherings of Jewish followers of Jesus. Uh, more than 30,000, I think 30,000, a very conservative estimate, Jewish believers that regularly fellowship in those congregations. I think the, the actual number is probably three times that size at least. And um, the amazing thing is that due to other people in the country and also us at One for Israel, the awareness that the average Israeli has to the phenomenon that there's a growing group of Jewish people proclaiming Yeshua, Jesus, as our Messiah, has completely mm. changed and revolutionized. The exposure of the message is unparalleled back to the times of the early church. Wow. That's a, that's a powerful statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm standing behind it. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you've got the numbers to prove it. Well, let's get practical here as we wrap up this conversation and apply that verse right now. I'm going to invite you to lead us in a prayer for the peace of Jerusalem, first in Hebrew, if you don't mind, mm-hmm. and then a translation in English. Let's pray. אבינו שבשמיים אנחנו מתפללים שאתה תשפיע את שלומך, את רחמך, את טובך, על ציון, על ירושלים, עיר קודשך. אנחנו מתפללים שמשיח צדקנו, ישוע אדוננו, ישוב במהרה למלוך על הארץ. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to pray together. We pray that our Messiah, our righteousness, Yeshua, Jesus, will return to this earth, return to Jerusalem, quickly, that we may see his glorious face and worship his throne together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's Dr. Erez Soraf, who's president of One for Israel. We've got a lot more stories to hear from you, and we're going to have to have you back and talk about the impact of digital media. Is that mm-hmm. something you'd be willing to do? My pleasure. All right. So stay tuned here on The Land and the Book. Coming up, Charlie Dyer returns to the studio. I love what he's got there. A big stack of questions that have come in from listeners and a big Bible to answer those questions. That's up next here on The Land and the Book. Few things are more satisfying than getting an answer to a question that you've been thinking about, wondering about. John Gager here with you on The Land of the Book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, has his Bible open, and he's looking forward to answering your questions about Scripture, about prophecy, things that you have bumped into as you have uh, maybe opened your own copy of the Word of God. First, though, I have to ask you, you know, when this uh, program is over, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Well, Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content for their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. Now, as a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. Let's get to our first question of the day, this one from Gary, who takes us to Galatians 3.22. He asks, would the meaning or the intent change substantially through the replacement of the word by with of? I'm asking in search for the source of faith in a believer. Charlie, help us understand the verse and what he's asking. For those who might not know that verse off the top of their head, it says, The scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through, there's the word, 
through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, the preposition used there by Paul, translated through in that version I just read, is ek. It has the normal meaning of out of or from within. And I think the idea is that the promise flows out of or from or through the faith we place in Christ. Interestingly, Paul uses exactly the same phrase in verse 26, where he says we are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, In Galatians, he's arguing against those who said salvation results from faith plus keeping the Mosaic law, including circumcision. He's showing that salvation comes through faith alone in Christ alone. That's an important distinction. Thank you. Anne's question, after the tribulation, won't the earth be too devastated to transition into a pleasant millennium period like we read about? I understand that the new heaven and earth won't be until after the millennium, but it seems like the earth will be too much of a mess after the tribulation for the millennium period. Also, where does the new Jerusalem fit into all of this? Is it at the beginning of the millennium? Well, the world will indeed be in a very bad way at the end of the tribulation period. You know, just reading the effects by the the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments in Revelation paints a pretty grim picture of what this planet's going to be like at the end of that time. However, I am also reminded of God's ability to bring about dramatic change almost instantaneously. You know, he created the whole universe in six days. I believe he's able to renovate the earth in a very short period of time. I also see an example of this in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel describes a river of living water that's going to flow out of the new temple, flow down to the Dead Sea, and turn the Dead Sea to life, filling it with great quantities of fish. Uh, The word he uses for fresh there has the idea of to heal. That is, God's going to heal the Dead Sea. I think he's going to do something similar to the rest of the world, uh, probably in a very rapid fashion at the start of the millennium. Now, in terms of the New Jerusalem, we know it's already in existence. Hebrews 12 says it's the abode of God, Jesus, angels, Old Testament saints, and believers today who've died. And I think that's what Jesus was actually describing in John 14. Remember, he said uh, there's many dwelling places in the Father's house, and he was going to go prepare those for his followers. So we, we know the New Jerusalem finally comes down from heaven following the creation of the New Heaven heavens and new earth in Revelation 21. But now here's the key. The one thing we don't know with certainty is where the new Jerusalem will be during the millennium. Some think it's going to hover above the earth, uh, something like another moon. And that's possible, though it's not required. It's also possible it'll remain just where it is right now through the millennial period. If that's the case, it seems possible that Jesus, the angels, uh, even saints in their new bodies will be able to travel between the new Jerusalem and earth Uh, Certainly, angels can do that right now, and I don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility. But the reality is, we don't know for certain where that celestial city is going to be prior to its descent following the creation of the new heavens and new earth at the end of the millennium. Don't you love the way these questions stimulate your own thinking? I do. That's Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And by the way, your question is welcome anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. This listener says, help me understand the teaching of the King James only theology. I attend a church that only believes in the King James version of the Bible. Otherwise, the church's teaching is close to what I believe. I do use a modern translation at home because English isn't my native language. The pastor knows that I do use another version, but many times he preaches messages focused on King James only theology. Should I feel guilty because I use another version of the word? Uh, Let me start this way. Uh, The King James Version is a wonderful translation with a long and solid history. Uh, It's the translation I used early on to read and memorize God's Word, and I still find myself quoting Scripture using it. 
but I need to add that it's not the only good translation. Some of its wording and vocabulary is difficult for modern readers, uh, but that's not unusual. It was written 400 years ago, and that's why some of the more modern translations can explain what was originally written in Hebrew and Greek in a more understandable way, especially for someone who's not a native English speaker. Now, in terms of attending a King James-only church, there's no perfect local church because every church is composed of imperfect people. Uh, (laughs) There's usually something people don't really like about a church they attend, and it could be the music, the pastor's sermon style, the translation being used. But if the church believes God's Word and tries to teach it faithfully, then other lesser details can be overlooked. And it sounds like the church apparently matches closely with what you believe, apart from that emphasis on using only the King James Version. So I would encourage you, carry a King James Bible to church so you're not a stumbling block to others, but then don't feel guilty about using a modern translation to read at home. Your goal is to understand God's Word, and a modern translation can help. Chris says, my question is about testing the spirits. That's in 1 John 4. He says in verse 2, every spirit seems to indicate a multitude of spirits, as it does in verse 3. While there are multiple good angels and fallen angels, wouldn't the one Holy Spirit be speaking through born-again believers in verse 2? If so, it seems like the article, the, before spirit, might be more appropriate from a grammatical standpoint. Or am I just taking this verse too literally? Uh, Two observations I think can help. The first is the nature of the spirit being described. And the second is whether or not all the individuals identified as prophets in that section are true believers. Now, in the passage, John does use the word spirit in several ways. In verse 2, he refers to the spirit singular of God. Now, here he's describing the Holy Spirit. But in the previous verse, John told his readers to test the spirits, plural. Uh, It's the same root word, but in this case, John's using spirit to refer to spiritual forces, including those led by Satan who are opposed to God. In fact, in verse 3, John associates it with being of the Antichrist. Uh, In the early church, the gift of prophecy was still operative since they didn't yet have all of God's word. Anyone, including a false prophet, could stand up and say, this is the message I received from God. Uh, They could claim to be followers of Jesus, but they might not necessarily be born again. Uh, John's saying the way to test such so-called prophecies is to uh, look closely at both what's being said and who was saying it. The content of the message had to acknowledge the person and work of Jesus, and that's why John calls on him to test the spirits. Is the prophetic message truly from the Holy Spirit, or was it prompted by the author of lies, you know, the reflecting spirit of the Antichrist? Earlier in 2.19, John described individuals who had evidently been in the church but departed because they were not really of us. And in saying that, I think John's acknowledging there were people in the early church masquerading as prophets, sharing messages that didn't really reflect the teaching of the Holy Spirit. They reflected the teaching of Satan, and that's why he's calling on them to test the spirits. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. Our host, Charlie Dyer, working his way through a list of questions that have come to us via email. With the 10th plague, while the Israelites were in Egypt, Dean asks, is there any indication that there was a maximum age in the death of the firstborn male son, if the doorframe of that house was not covered by the blood of the lamb? For instance, if I was the firstborn male son, he says, and I was, say, 47 years old, would I have perished, or was it only children that perished? Now, the Bible doesn't specifically identify any upper age limit in terms of God striking down the firstborn. In fact, in Genesis 12, 12, God says that he'll strike down all the firstborn in the land, and he uses the Hebrew word kol, which is the normal all-inclusive word for all. 
The same word is repeated in 1229. It records that God struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So I take it that this word would have included me since I'm a firstborn son. Uh, It was definitely the greatest of the plagues, and it must have devastated Egypt. Mark says, in Sunday school, we discussed Acts 8.15. Stephen performed signs and miraculous wonders. The pastor said that since Stephen was not an apostle, miracles are not limited to the apostles or the apostolic age. What's your interpretation? Also, Stephen was described as having a face appearing as that of an angel. Uh, can you help me out here? What, what does that really mean? Yeah, well, Stephen wasn't an apostle, but the ability to perform miracles and miraculous signs wasn't just limited to the apostles in that age. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul mentions gifts of the Spirit given to individuals within the early church, and he includes gifts of healing, miraculous powers, prophecy, tongues, etc. They were distributed by the Spirit to individuals within the church and not just to apostles. Now, in regard to the other question, I've always taken the description of Stephen in Acts 6 to be picturing either serenity or strength, or perhaps something of a heaven-sent peace and courage. Uh, While it could be possible it's paralleling the glory from Moses' face, I don't see anything in the passage that points directly to that. Looking forward to Charlie's devotional. It's next right here on The Land and the Book. Summertime. It means lemonade. It means flip-flops, bare feet, and swimming pools. Coming up here on The Land and the Book, Charlie's devotional takes us to the Pool of Gibeon. And Charlie, you say there's some battles there? Yeah, John, it's an amazing place and some rather incredible battles taking place there. Looking forward to hearing about those. We're going to pause right now, though, and take in this Holy Land experience, a testimony from an Israel traveler who wants to share this with you and me. Yes, uh, my name is Dr. Michael Chimes. I did go to Israel on two occasions and just really felt like I literally was walking through the Bible. Uh, From uh, Capernaum, where Jesus uh, spoke in the temple and the ruins of that first temple, uh, Sea of Galilee, uh, the Dead Sea. I mean, it is just an awesome experience, and I would encourage any believer uh, to uh, make it a priority to visit uh, the great land. And um, I will say uh, it was just incredible to visit the various sites, especially in Jerusalem, too, and observe how the coexistence of the people uh, was very impressive to me. All right, the battle at the Pool of Gibeon, part one. Charlie, I'm intrigued. We'll turn things over to you for your devotional. Uh, Thanks, John. Yeah, for the next two weeks, I want to take you on a journey to the ancient city of Gibeon, Now, if you know your Bible, then you're somewhat familiar with this town. The people of Gibeon were the ones who tricked Joshua into making a peace treaty with them. And then a little later, Joshua had to lead Israel's forces on a night march from near Jericho to rescue Gibeon when the city was threatened by a coalition of Canaanite kings. But we're not visiting the city during the time of Joshua. Instead, we're traveling to the town at a later period in Israel's history, just after the death of King Saul. So put on your hiking boots and follow me to the summit of this rounded hill. Our destination is a circular pit dug into the bedrock on top. But before we reach the pit, I want to tell you a bit about the name of the town. Those reading the Bible tend to skip over place names and people names because they don't mean much to the reader. And sometimes the names are so similar that they can become rather confusing. For example, three towns within just a few miles of each other 
have almost identical names. Three miles to the east of Gibeon is the town of Gibeah. Now that's the hometown of King Saul. And three miles to the north of Gibeah, and just four miles from Gibeon, was the town of Geba. Now these three towns form a triangle, and the name of each comes from the same Hebrew word used to describe a hill, an elevated spot that isn't quite tall enough to be called a mountain. The hill on which Gibeon was built is about 200 feet high. Now, it's not so confusing if you think of how we do something similar. You ever been to Farmington Hills, Michigan, or Beverly Hills, California, or Chapel Hill, North Carolina, or Cedar Hill, Texas? Well, these biblical towns were built on distinctive hills, and in part, that's how they got their names. Okay, we reached the pit here on top of the hill. In the Bible, this pit is called the Pool of Gibeon. It's actually quite an impressive piece of engineering. Now, we don't know exactly when it was constructed, but we do know it was in use by the time of David. The rounded shaft or pit is 40 feet in diameter, and there's a circular staircase carved into the side of the shaft that leads down 35 feet to the bottom. From there, another tunnel leads further down to the spring. It took a lot of time to carve this giant pit into the bedrock. But as amazing as this site is archaeologically and structurally, we're here to explore two key biblical events that are anchored to this very site. And the first, the one I want to talk about this week, comes from the time when David was challenging Saul's son, Ishbosheth, for control of the nation. So find a comfortable spot where you can sit down while I open my Bible to 2 Samuel. The first few chapters of 2 Samuel describe a chaotic and at times gruesome period in Israel's history. The nation was divided between two rival leaders. Ishbosheth ruled over most of the kingdom once controlled by his father. But the real power behind his throne was Abner, the commander of Saul's army. Following Saul's death, Abner took Ishbosheth east across the Jordan River and set him up there as king in Gilead. Eventually, Abner clawed back some of the land that had been captured by the Philistines when they killed Saul, making Ishbosheth king over Jezreel, Ephraim, and then Benjamin. Meanwhile, David had been selected as king by the tribe of Judah with his temporary capital in Hebron. His general was Joab, who was also busy leading raiding parties to expand and secure the territory under David's control. As one general pushed toward the south, the other pushed north. It was inevitable that the two would clash, and the initial skirmish took place right where you're sitting. The two opposing forces literally found themselves on opposite sides of this large pit in front of us. One group sat down on one side of the pool, and one group sat down on the other side. Abner proposed a challenge. Let's have some of the young men get up and fight, hand-to-hand -hand in front of us. Twelve elite fighters from both sides were selected to represent the entire fighting force. Much like the challenge issued by Goliath to Israel several years earlier, the idea was to have this select group decide the battle rather than making the entire army on both sides fight. But if the idea behind the proposal was to avoid excessive bloodshed, the plan failed miserably. Each fighter killed his opponent, leaving all 24 men dead without providing a clear victor. At that point, all the other soldiers rushed into the battle to avenge their champions. When the fighting was over and David's forces reassembled, 19 men plus the younger brother of Joab were dead. And it's unclear from the text if this included the 12 killed in the initial contest or if the total from Judah killed that day was actually 32. But as significant as those losses were to David's forces, they paled in comparison to the losses suffered by Abner and the army of Ishbosheth. The account reports that 
David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. Nearly 400 men died in the battle that day, a battle that began around the very pit where you're now sitting. Sadly, these weren't the only casualties that day. Joab's younger brother, Asahel, raced after Abner, trying to capture or kill him. The Bible says he was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle, and he relentlessly pursued the older, more experienced warrior. Abner tried to talk him into stopping, but Asahel kept coming. And that's when Abner used his military experience to suddenly thrust the end of his spear backward, pushing it with such force that it went through the younger warrior's body. Abner escaped, but Joab never forgot what was done to his brother. Later, when Abner met with David and offered to help reunite the kingdom under David's rule, Joab was furious. He sent a messenger after Abner, asking him to return to Hebron. And when Abner did, Joab avenged the blood of his brother by stabbing Abner in the stomach, killing him. Okay, this is definitely a gruesome story, but is there a lesson we can take away from our time here at the Pool of Gibeon? I think there is, and it comes from comparing the lives of Abner, Joab, and David in this extended account. Abner was a warrior, but even in war, he sought to fight fair. His proposal to have 12 warriors fight in place of the entire army was an attempt to keep the number of casualties to a minimum. It didn't work, but at least he tried. He also tried to persuade Asahel to stop pursuing him, saying, Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? This grizzled warrior tried to avoid bloodshed when possible. In contrast, Joab was a bloodthirsty warrior bent on revenge. He brutally ambushed and attacked Abner under the guise of saying David wanted him to return to Hebron. David himself apparently feared Joab. He said to his advisors, Today, though I'm the anointed king, I'm weak. And those sons of Zariah, that is, Joab and his one remaining brother, are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoers according to his evil deeds. In fact, David's final instructions to Solomon were to remind him what Joab had done in shedding blood in peacetime as if in battle, and to encourage Solomon to deal with Joab according to your wisdom. So what's the lesson for us? Perhaps it's this. We all face challenges in life, and at times there are battles that need to be fought. But remember this. The end never justifies the means. Abner may have been the general for the opposing side, but he was more honorable than the one leading David's own army. Joab was a master soldier, but he never mastered his own anger or his desire for revenge. And as a result, in spite of all his great military victories, he ended life as a failure. As Leonardo da Vinci wrote, one can have no smaller or greater mastery than mastery of oneself. Joab never learned that lesson, but it's a lesson we must never forget. Well, unfortunately, our time has gone by too quickly as it always does. We sure appreciate your making a point to connect with us. Uh, you can always visit our website, thelandandthebook.org, to connect with today's guest, past programs, future programs as well. It's all there, as well as uh, a books tab you can click to look at books that Charlie has written, a couple I've written as well, all at thelandandthebook.org. Our thanks to Dan Anderson, our producer. I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.